And if you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 2. If you forgot your Bible this morning or didn't bring one, you can grab one from the pew back in front of you. I believe the number is 757. Matthew chapter 2. Starting in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chiefs and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region, and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, that we have come to yet another Advent season where we celebrate the birth of your Son. We praise you, Lord, for you have been so gracious to us and indeed gracious to the whole world. Because of your love, you sent your Son into the world to condemn sin on the cross, to save humanity, to bring about your blessings that they might flow as far as the curse is found. What a gracious and a good God you are. And now we pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and in our lives, that you would continue to transform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray as we look to your word that you would teach us from it. We ask that you would give hard hearts Uh, that you would take hard hearts and make them soft, that you would give closed ears the gift of being opened. 
Lord, and that we would hear from you. And we pray all this in Jesus' good name and for his sake. Amen. Well, this Advent season, we've been in Matthew's gospel, looking at the birth of Christ, the the stories surrounding the birth of Christ that Matthew um, relays to us. And last week, we looked specifically at Joseph's response to the news of Christ's birth. The angel came to Joseph, and so we looked at that passage and how Joseph responded. And so this week, we're going to do something similar. Um, The news comes to King Herod this time who was the man who ruled over Judea. And so just as we examined Joseph and his response to the news of the birth of Jesus Christ, so this morning we're gonna look at King Herod and his response and how he responds to the news of the birth of the Messiah. Now this story, the story of the wise men coming to King Herod may be familiar to a lot of us. It's familiar yet there are still mysterious parts. So for example, who are these wise men? who come bearing gifts. And where did we get the notion that there were three of them when we're not told how many of them there were, right? And why do we always have the nativity scenes with the wise men there when we read the passage and it appears that this is sometime after Christ's birth, right? So there are all these parts and pieces of the story, some of which we've filled in ourselves, but some of which we've never gotten answers for. Like, um, how did these wise men hear about the birth of a Jewish Messiah? If they were from the East, where did they hear, um, hear about that, right? How did they discern that from seeing a star in the sky? How did this star, even, even more specifically, how did the star lead them to the house that Jesus was at in Bethlehem? Because they go to Jerusalem looking for the child, and then they're directed to Bethlehem through the word of God and the prophecy. But then the scripture says that as they were heading to Bethlehem, the star rested on the place where Jesus lay, How is that possible? Well, you know, how did that happen? Well, a lot of these questions we're not given answers to, and that's okay. We said last week that it shouldn't be surprising to us at all that the incarnation of the Son of God, him coming into our world as a newborn babe, is accompanied by by mystery. There was no moment in all of human history like it, so of course it's accompanied by mystery. We can expect that there will be parts of the Christmas story that are mysterious, and they're, they're mysterious in part because they're, they're meant to cause us to wander. They're wondrous, which means they're meant to cause us to wander at our great God and to praise him, that his works are, are far above and beyond what we can understand or comprehend. So I'm sure as, as we go through this story this morning, we're still going to have some unanswered questions about this account. But I do want to get to some of the the background, the historical background, including these central characters in the account that will, I think, shed light on on the story. So that's going to be our first task, and then we're going to move on to Herod's response to Christ's birth. Look at verse 1. The chapter begins, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So we're introduced to the central characters of this story here in verse 1, King Herod and the wise men from the east. We're told that this took place sometime after the birth of Jesus Christ, so we can safely assume that it wasn't on the night of his birth. Many commentators and scholars have estimated that this could have occurred 
a year or maybe even two after Christ's birth, I find that doubtful because they're still in Bethlehem away from their home in Nazareth. So I think it's more likely that this probably happened a week or several months after Christ's birth had happened. Now, before we, we move on, we need to investigate the characters then a bit. In verse 21, Herod is called a king, and he was kind of a king. At this time, the area of Judea was all under the control of the Romans, but the way that the Romans worked was that when they conquered an area or when they conquered a people, they would often put governors or rulers in charge who were from that region. And in that way, the people were less likely to revolt against Rome because they would have their own rulers who were familiar with their own customs, their own traditions, their own religion, their own culture. And to some extent, the rulers or the governors or the kings were meant to be seen as one of their own. They were meant to, to uh, be seen as a representative of the people. So for Herod, uh, while the Roman emperor and the, and the Senate, in part at least, at this time were the ones that were really in charge, Herod had been given jurisdiction by Rome to rule over Judea. But it wasn't given to him for free, and this is something that we need to know and is important to us in understanding Herod's response. Herod didn't get Judea for free, he had to fight for it. So 30 plus years before all of this happened, in 40 BC, he was told, by Rome that if he could defeat the opposition to Rome in Judea, then Rome would recognize, them as the, recognize him as the king of Judea. And so Herod fought, and he fought a three-year-long war against the Jewish dynasty known as the Hasmonean dynasty. That was the Jewish dynasty that had ruled over Judea as an independent state for over a hundred years. It was a miraculous thing, and that goes all the way back to the time of the Maccabees. So Herod fought this war with antagonists, who was from the Hasmonean dynasty, and he fought this war for three years against this man. And through cunning and through wit and through lots of money and some help from the Romans, he finally defeated antagonists, and he became king of Judea in 37 BC. And so, and so Herod ruled over Judea from 37 BC all the way until his death in 4 BC, right around the time of Christ's birth. So Herod is what is called, or was called, a client king of the Roman Empire. And being king of Judea meant that he was king of the Jewish land and of the Jewish peoples. Now a few other uh, important bits of information about Herod that shed light on our story. Herod portrayed himself as a faithful Jew. He claimed to be a faithful Jew, but much of the population of Judea didn't see it that way. His Jewish heritage was questionable, which is why first century Jewish historian Josephus calls him a half-Jew. So he was, he was looked down upon by many of the Jews, and he was seen by most of the Jews at the time as a usurper to the throne. He didn't come from the Jewish ruling family, the Hasmonean dynasty that had been established over a century. And on top of that, he was an ally of the Roman Empire. So he wasn't popular. He wasn't popular in Judea. And that was also due to the fact that he laid on the people heavy taxes. And the reason why he taxed the people so heavily was to support his relationship with Rome and to support his many impressive, to fund his many impressive building projects. 
The temple, um, the, uh, the project that he's most known for is the rebuilding and the, the, um, the expansion of the temple in Jerusalem. You know, Josephus wrote that Herod spent an enormous amount of money on the temple project and that Herod saw it as an example of his devotion to the God of Israel. Perhaps it was Herod trying to prove himself before the Jews that God had indeed raised him up as their king and that he was a faithful Jew. But Herod was also known, however, as a ruthless king, one who didn't exactly follow God's law. He had, over his lifetime, ten different wives, one of which he killed along with her son because he feared he had heard rumors that they were possibly after his throne. He was constantly paranoid about losing his position, and he was always willing to do whatever it would take to keep it. New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger says, Herod had ten wives and many children, and palace intrigue was thick throughout Herod's reign. This included plots, assassination attempts, deception, and treachery by almost everyone around him. Herod lived among people he could not trust, and he regularly feared for his life and throne. This uncertainty and upheaval led Herod to make six different wills. He changed the wills based upon whom he thought he could trust, and alternately, which son had recently plotted to kill him. So in short, Herod was not a good king, and he was not a godly man. But a man who was very cunning, he knew how to play politics, he knew how to make alliances with the right people and identify and eliminate potential enemies. So that was Herod. And what about the wise men? Well, we have much less information available to us concerning the wise men. They're identified in Greek as magi, which helps us a little. The term was used at that time for wise men, for priests or astrologers. We're told that they came from the east, which is, again, a little bit of a help, but still somewhat ambiguous. They could have been from Persia or Arabia or perhaps Babylon, as the Babylonians had a great interest in astrology. And if they were from Babylon, you can guess how it was that rumors of a great Jewish king would have come to them because there was a large population of Jewish people that had lived in Babylon for centuries. But in any case, wherever they were from, they were foreigners to Judea coming from the east. They would have likely been held in high esteem in their own country, but they would have probably been viewed with suspicion in Judea. And seeing as how they had come to Judea by way of following a star, they were very likely astrologers who had studied the skies in attempt to interpret and discern future events from the stars. And here's one of those mysteries that I talked about earlier. The Bible never condones astrology, and it outright condemns divination and practices that interpret the future or fortune based upon anything other than the direct revelation from God. But here we find, as part of the Christmas story, the Christmas story, a miraculous, a mysterious, yet wonderful providence of God. Wise men coming from the East to celebrate the birth of the Savior, and God guides these men to the Christ child in the most unique and peculiar way by the appearance of a star. So then we pick up our story here. Herod hears of these magi asking around town about the newborn king of the Jews. 
Without giving away his intentions, he invites the Magi to his court. He asks the scribes and the priests about the Messiah because he knows that the prophets spoke of God raising up a, a king who would be like David. And so being experts in the scripture, they read this prophecy from Micah that foretells of the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem. Now this is not interpreted by Herod by good, or as good news at all. Here are these foreign magi, men of high esteem who have traveled far from their country with strange news. A child has been born who was king of the Jews. And Herod may be asking things like, what child is born king? What does that mean? That he was born king of the Jews. And why would dignified men from the east travel for months, a dangerous and difficult journey, just to pay homage to a baby they called king of the Jews? And they're asking all around Jerusalem about this baby born king of the Jews, all the yet while they're showing very little concern for Herod himself. It was all very strange. It was all very concerning to Herod. He was the king of the Jews, you see. And the way he got his title was by fighting a man who had support from where? From the east. And who claimed to have the right to the throne because he was born in the line of the Hasmonean dynasty. He claimed to be the rightful heir. The man he fought 30 plus years ago was a man who had support from the east and who claimed a right to the throne. So this is all starting to sound very familiar to Herod. And that's probably why, along with Herod, we're told that all of Jerusalem was troubled. Why would all of Jerusalem be troubled? Well, they were not keen on another war. Whether or not this child was the rightful heir to the throne of David, they didn't care. They didn't want another war. And for Herod, he wasn't about to take any chances. If word got around that the child born in Bethlehem was the long-awaited Messiah, then who knows what might happen? The average man on the street might rather put up with Herod's tyrannical taxes than take their chances in civil war, but that didn't mean there couldn't be an uprising. If this child truly was the Messiah, as Herod is thinking about this, if he really was the Messiah, then surely he was a threat to Herod and to Herod's rule. So cunning Herod summons the Magi to his court. Based upon what the scriptures had told him, he sends them to Bethlehem to find the child, and he asks them to bring him word when they do find the child so that he too can worship him. But we find out from verse 16 that his intention was actually to kill him. When the wise men find Jesus, they give him expensive gifts and they honor him as king. They pay homage to him. And then they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So the scripture tells us they depart to their own country another way. Now that's the sketch of our story. And one of the things I believe that Matthew means for us to see is a stark contrast between the Magi and Herod. These two represent completely opposing reactions to the birth of Jesus Christ. Herod hears the news of the Messiah's birth and he immediately concocts a scheme to get rid of him, to murder him, to eliminate him. The Magi hear of it, however it is they do, and they put everything aside to find Christ. They journey for months to find him with gifts so they may honor him as the king. 
And we could say there's a sense in which every man and every woman since has played one of those two parts, either the part of Herod or the part of the wise men. And all who read this account are led to ask the question, have I responded to the news of the birth of Jesus Christ? How have I responded? Have I responded to his coming into this world like the Magi? Or have I responded like Herod did? The Christmas story beckons the world to worship Christ who was born that day. It beckons rulers, governors, kings, dignitaries, commoners, peasants alike to come and bow down before Christ who was born King of Jews and who was raised up by God the Father to be King of all the nations of the earth. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, the Father says to the Son in Psalm 2, 8. Now what might we learn from Herod's response then? First of all, I want to say that Herod's issue wasn't that he didn't believe in in a Messiah or that the Messiah could be born in Bethlehem. It wasn't that um, he doubted that the child that they sought really could be the Messiah. He didn't say, oh, I just can't believe it. It's too far-fetched. No, his issue was that the birth of the Messiah was a threat to his position and his power. He didn't care what God had said about the Messiah. Herod wasn't going to let the Messiah interrupt his rule. And the fact that Herod heard confirmation from God's word that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the fact that he knew that this child that the Magi were seeking may actually be the child of God's promise actually increases Herod's guilt. It means he knew that he might very well be fighting not just against man, but against God. So you know what Herod teaches us? He teaches us that Christmas isn't just about believing the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he was the one that the prophets foretold would come. Even Herod recognized that, and he believed it enough to send assassins to Bethlehem. You see, men and women can believe the story of Christ's birth and yet be in opposition to Christ himself. Every Christmas they can sing songs about his birth, about him being Emmanuel, and all the rest, and yet still go about doing everything they must to secure their own rule and their own agendas over their own lives. Now the truth is that for Herod to have rightly responded to Christ's birth wouldn't have been for him to necessarily just step down from his position as king of Judea. But it would have been for him to embrace the news of Christ's birth as good news and to confess his allegiance to the Messiah as the king of all kings. In other words, as his king and his sovereign Lord, accepting whatever that would mean for him and for the future of Judea. But instead, what does Herod do? He tries to find Jesus by way of deceiving the Magi into telling them where the child is. And then when his deception doesn't work, he tries to eliminate Jesus by killing all the male infants in the region, in the whole region of Bethlehem. He was so set on securing his rule that he was willing to kill innocent children to keep it. And we shouldn't miss the parallel to those in political power today who rule in opposition to Christ and are willing for innocent children to be killed so that they might keep their position. 
The result is today as it was in Herod's day, death and destruction. Opposition to Christ, in other words, always comes with collateral damage, especially when rulers oppose him. Why? Because there is only one way to justice, and there is only one way to peace, and there's only one way to life for the individual and for the whole world, and that is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every other God leads to destruction. Every false religion, every secularism leads to nothing but death. So it is for every individual and for all society that it will be allegiance to Christ and life or opposition to Christ and ultimately destruction and death. But we can't exempt ourselves from this story. Herod serves as a lesson for those in places of authority and power, but he also serves as a lesson for every individual, no matter what their position in society is. Because there's something in Herod that's found in all of mankind. That is the desire to be king and have our own kingdoms, however small they might be, but be our own kings of our own kingdoms. Because in my kingdom, guess what? I get to do what I want. I get to play God over my little realm. So what do we do when the one who claims all authority in heaven on earth comes? All authority over all realms and all peoples. You see, Jesus poses a threat to our autonomy. Jesus poses a threat to our self-rule. And that means that either I submit myself to him, Lord, as Lord, or I fight to keep what I deem as rightfully mine. And that inevitably leads me to go to various strategies and lengths to free myself from him and his claim of authority over me. That's what the rulers of Psalm 2 say of God and his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, Herod may have thought that the best way to rid himself of of the threat that Jesus was to his kingdom was to find Jesus and kill him. But we know that that's not the modern-day solution. The modern-day solution is to just leave him in the first century, to put as much distance between him and us as possible, to pretend that he was just a character from the past and not a present reality whose judgment is the destiny of all creatures, great and small or to pretend that he belongs in the sphere that we label religion, which we keep in the personal and private sector of human life. Don't forget, even Herod claimed to be religiously devoted to the God of Israel. He built a massive temple dedicated to God and a house of worship to God. And he was happy serving God, the God of Israel, as long as that God stayed in the temple that he built for him. But it turns out that God didn't need his service at all. And as King Solomon wisely proclaimed at the dedication of the first temple, heaven cannot contain you, is what Solomon said. How much less this house that I have built. And so when God did not, in fact, stay in Herod's temple... But instead, he took on flesh and entered into Herod's world. That is the world wherein Herod was trying to establish his own rule. His true colors were revealed. He may have done things in the name of his religious devotion to the Lord, 
but when it came to surrendering the power and authority that he had fought for, he wasn't willing to give it up. You see how easy it is to play the part of Herod? Few people would say, yes, I'm just like him, but the reality is, is that so many are. Now, the Christmas story is a, wonder, is a wonderful story. It's wonderful news to the world that a Savior has been born. He's the Savior of the world. He's the one who will, as we sing, put death's dark shadows to flight. And he has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. But he's also the king to whom every king and every commoner owes their allegiance. He is also the cornerstone upon which men and cultures and tribes and nations will either be lifted up or they will be crushed. And Herod serves as a warning. He serves as a warning to every man and woman, every society and every nation, no matter how great or how small. Is my service to the Lord genuine? Does it come from a heart of surrender to him as God and, as, and Christ as Lord? Or am I still trying to maintain my rule over my little kingdom, viewing my life as really belonging to myself to do as I see fit with it? Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Lewis once wrote, give up your life and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. So bring him incense, gold and myrrh. Come peasant and king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you and we praise you this morning for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into our world. That he might bring us salvation. That he might save us from ourselves that he might save us from the folly of trying to rule over our own lives, the folly of trying to save ourselves. We thank you and we praise you. And we ask that his salvation would be poured out upon this world, that many would come to faith this Christmas season in the one and only King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this we pray in Jesus' name, who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and for all times. Amen.